You probably heard the saying, nobody likes surprises. That's mostly true. There are a few surprises that we like. We, we like being told when we had discouraging lab results that they were actually an anomaly. They didn't apply to us. It was a mistake. We like meeting with old friends at airports that we don't expect to see. That's, that's a great surprise. And, of course, any version of money that falls into our laps unexpectedly is great, unless maybe it's gold bars. That would probably be painful if that fell literally into your lap, so maybe that's not so good. But for the most part, we don't like surprises. One of the ways I know that is, is recently I've had two children, the past few years, two children, adult children, get married. And... Leading up to that marriage, there was the all-important engagement day. And I learned from both the, 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 the bride-to-be that was in my family and the one that was not in the, in the family that neither one wanted really to be surprised by that. In both cases, they, they, they very much wanted to know that the day was coming. They, they wanted to know because they had a certain way they wanted to be able to handle the surprise. They, there was a kind of readiness that was part of, of, of the expectation of that day. They wanted their hair to look right. They wanted to be wearing the right clothes. They wanted their nails, of course, to be done in case there was a picture of a ring. In all those, they, they, they had this expectation that it was an important day. It was the inauguration of something critical, and they wanted to be prepared as they went into it. They wanted everything to be appropriate, so they didn't want the day to be a surprise. They wanted to know. Tonight, as we contemplate the, the, those words in Verses 1 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians, we, we get to think about a much bigger day. A day in which is a surprise, a day in which is about a, a bride meeting her groom, but is also a, a day for which there should be no surprise at all. And Paul wants us to understand that. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us understand rightly. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we look to you for the grace that you give in this hour to, to help us know what's before us to help us see the specific words which you, by your Spirit, have inspired and given to us by the writing of the Apostle Paul, that these words would be useful to us, convicting and convincing of your truth, and they would indeed make us ready to meet our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to briefly tonight remind you of, of where we're coming from in, in 1 Thessalonians and, and to get you back into it because it's been a little while. And, and I want to spend some time contemplating something that's not in the text. I want to talk about the, the, the judgment day. What is there for us to know about it? Because not a lot is said about that day in the text, but more about how we approach that day. And so I want to spend some time on that. And then I want to look carefully at the passage and, and note several things that the Apostle Paul does there. Primarily the suddenness of the day. And then the responses of those who, who, who are, are in some way approaching that day, both the careless and the watchful. First off, to go back and remind you about the, the context uh, of 1 Thessalonians, this is a, a letter in response to Timothy's good report to the Apostle Paul. Paul had, had been to Thessalonica. He had preached the gospel to them. They had heard the word. They had believed upon it. They had put their trust in Christ, and a church had been formed. It was glorious, but it was also a, a cause of suffering. Being identified with Christ meant that there were going to be those who would persecute them. And so Paul is, is addressing that as well. He's, he, and he's celebrating with him. Most of what he does in this letter up to this point has been a celebration of, of all of the manifestations of, of the Spirit's presence in this body. When the word was preached, they heard it. When, when they were called to do things that identified with Christ, they, they, they went in that direction and and their, their ability to persevere was, was likewise the presence of God working within them, enabling them to stand up and to stand with Christ. 
And so Paul mostly celebrates them, but eventually as he gets to the latter portion of the chapter, into chap- the latter, latter portions of the book in chapter 4, he begins to, to give them a series of specific calls to, to what it's going to mean to be a follower of Christ and to remind them of specific things that they already knew, but to remind them again more specifically that they might persevere in their faith. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, was a call to holiness, particularly with regard to sexual purity. Verses 9 and 10 of that chapter were a call for them to love within the body of Christ. Verses 11 and 12 were a call for them to be workers, those who, who would labor with their hands, that they would provide for themselves. And then the, the previous section we looked at was a call to, to hope in the resurrection, the, 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 the coming and anticipated resurrection of the body in Christ, that they wouldn't fear for those who had already passed, but to have hope for them as much as they would have hope for themselves, that everybody would be raised to be with the Lord. Now as we come to chapter 5, there's, a, there's a, a call that follows on to the previous call and at the end of chapter 4. This one is a call to be prepared for the day of the Lord. And so the first question we ask is, is when we come to this text is what is the day of the Lord? Much of what Paul says in this passage, again, is something that's reminding believers this is how you are supposed to respond to this day. This is how you're supposed to distinguish yourself from, from, from the watching and unbelieving world who doesn't understand what you're doing to make yourself distinct in how you approach it. And so let me encourage you to, to, to take your hymnals again. And if you would, turn in the back of your hymnal to pages 938 and 939. There you will find the work of some of Pastor Robin's dead friends, the Westminster Divines, the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and chapters 32 and 33. We have two chapters in our confession that speak to our eschatology, our view of last things. Chapter 32 is of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. And I'll read this. We have time to, to do this. It says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Then the next paragraph, at the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. That speaks very much to what we saw in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But then we look forward to to what we should know in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 33 of the Last Judgment. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in their body, whether good or evil. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy, the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice, and the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments, 
be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And finally, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter men, all men from sin and from the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men. They may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. The elements of the day that are highlighted there are the fact that this is, in the first place, it's a certain day. The day is not in question. Our only uncertainty with this day, according to what this says and what the Bible teaches, is, is not that the day will come, but on what day that day will come. But there's no possibility of that day not coming. It is absolutely fixed in the mind of God, determined ahead of time by him. Acts chapter 3, we read this, the, the sermon of Peter. He says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. He's saying this, this day is settled. It, it's already been proclaimed by God and that assures that it comes. It's also a judgment day as it testifies. It is a day in which the righteous and the unrighteous will, will be distinguished one from another. They will be separated from all eternity. There will be blessings and curses, reward and wrath. All that according to the sure word of God. It's also a universal day. As you read just a few moments ago, it's a day not only for men, but also for angels as well. Every person, every personality is going to be judged for what they've done in the time of their existence. It's an apocalyptic day in the true sense of that word. The, the term apocalypse, we often think of it means the explosion of everything at the end of something. But it really means revelation. The, the book of Revelation is in Greek, the apocalypse. And it's a day in which everything is going to be revealed or exposed. All that was hidden or forgotten by men is going to come back before a holy God. He's going to reveal that he knows all things at that moment in that judgment. Paul writes in Romans 2.16, In that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Fifthly, it's a ratification day. As in, all things will be settled, and at that point there will be no room for repentance. Daniel spoke of this in Daniel chapter 12. He says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. It goes on in verse 10 of Daniel 12, Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Revelation, it says in this way, Let him who is filthy be filthy still, and he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What you are, what you are in that judgment of the last day before Christ is what you will be forever, and it will not change. A day is also a transforming day. The day of judgment is a day in which people will be changed eternally. How they are judged in Christ is what they will be confirmed in forever. Just as there is no room for repentance, also after that day there will be no room for more sin. 
Every man, woman, and child who is in Christ will be confirmed and fixed in that immortal state and it will be glorious. And every wicked person shall likewise be confirmed in the state in which they are in immortal to suffer in eternity for their sins. Paul celebrates this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And Paul as well testifies in Philippians 3, we will, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. We will be like Christ, those who are in Christ. Seventh feature of that day is it's a retributive day. It's the day in which God's wrath will be poured out on the wicked. Their sins shall be remembered against them. There will be no denying, no excuse making, no escaping. The consequences will fall on that day and they will fall forever. Every selfish act, every slight against another person, every idolatry, every carnality, every wounding, all of those things will be paid for by the wrath of God poured out beginning on that day and forevermore forward. And all those, those hateful acts that are taken against the Lord's chosen, against his beloved children, those will be judged and they will be afflicted for having afflicted and having touched the apple of his eye. Eighthly, it's a relieving day. The promise of this day is one that assures the saints that their suffering is going to come to an end. All of those who have done them evil, all the evils they have experienced in a fallen world, is that day fixes all those things so that never again will those things be visited upon them. Because of that, it's a comforting day. It's a day that we can look forward to in which Paul is going to ask you to look forward to it in our text tonight. And finally, that day is a day of glory. It is, as the confession says, for the manifestation of God's glory, not, not only for the one attribute, but for all his attributes, his power, his wisdom, his righteousness. All of these things are going to be manifest and vindicated. His goodness will be shown in his love and his mercy and his grace. His wisdom will be shown in his perfect knowledge and discernment in applying that judgment. His righteousness and his wrath that's poured out will be revealed and also his vindication of the saints and he will show his power to transform, to deliver, and also to consign into darkness and gloom for all eternity. All of these will be displayed in their fullness. And so for this reason alone, it's a reason for believers to look forward to. And so Paul would ask you to do that. So, so look again at our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As this, this prepares us to, to understand what we're seeing in that. Paul opens up with, with, with telling the Thessalonians, this is your happy position. You are in a good place. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly, or you know accurately, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, the, the thief in the night sounds terrible, but he says, he says, no, this is not a problem for you, because you already know this. Your, your thoughts actually on this are perfect. How did they get to be in that position? It's because, well, the, the word came to them, and it was preached to them. They received it and believed it. Paul preached this, and Paul could not preach the coming judgment of God. He could not preach it because it was required of him to make sense of the gospel, but he couldn't he could not preach it as well because it's found throughout Scripture. Genesis 4, you find that this day of judgment being spoken of, that there is a wrath of God against sin that will be poured out, and there's a need for a deliverer on that day. This is true, and it belongs to us. It's part of our confession. We, we confess it in the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, our confession of faith. All of this is testifying to this same truth that this 
is a coming day which is certain and fixed and we can't escape. And it's good that you would know that. In this case, it is not, ignorance is not bliss in this case. Ignorance is the worst thing that could happen because that's the state of those who, who live in darkness will come to those. Paul preached this because this truth, this truth is essential to the gospel he preaches. If there's no final judgment, then, then you have a God who is not holy, who winks at sin, who makes little of it. If there's no final judgment, then, then there's no hope that sin is going to ultimately be going, is ultimately going to be overcome. That, that sin is going to get, remain a problem forever. If there's no final judgment, then, then, then God's righteousness is not going to be vindicated. All those things, those times that he's promised a deliverance, if he doesn't at last deliver from his enemies, doesn't at last deliver us from God's enemies, then can we trust God? If there's no final judgment, then God's wrath is not going to be propitiated. He's not going to be able to pour out that wrath on those deserving of it. And if there's no judgment, then Christ died for nothing. There was no wrath to escape. There was no need for him to come. His mission had no purpose. And so, of course, Paul preaches this day of judgment. Of course, they, when they heard it, because the Spirit was at work in them, they believed it and received it and accepted it as true. We're going to live in light of it. So Paul says this is good that they should know this. And he finishes, if you look down to the, the, the closing of this section in verse 11, he says, therefore comfort each, each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. He's expecting that these words are useful, that they are good for them, and it's going to build up the body of Christ. What does he want to say with these encouraging words? Well, again, look in verse 2. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. I'm sure that, that, that there is a multitude of you who have been visited by a thief in the night in here. It is a horrible thing. I don't know if, you, if anyone ever has had a home invasion. I hope that's never been the case for anyone here. Uh, at least certainly not while you were there. But if you've had something precious stolen, something that, that, that happened that form. I, I know I had. I remember the, the, this formative memory of my childhood. I, I grew up back in the 1900s. Um, back in... Some of you are laughing. You're like, oh, yeah, that's true, isn't it? I grew up in a small town in Texas, and it was, it was the kind of town where, where you could, it, when I was growing up, you could, no kidding, drive your pickup truck to school, and you could have your deer rifle and the gun rack uh, behind you in the seat where everyone could see it, and you could leave your windows down, and it would be fine all day. I'm not saying it was a good idea, but that's what we did, and everything just kind of seemed to be left alone. And the same thing was, was true with our, with our house and the, the cars and, uh, that, that were parked in front. Is that we routinely left our keys in the car, the windows down. The only threat to that was the rain, which never, never came where I grew up in Texas. So it was hardly ever a problem. And we oftentimes had, had our glove compartment full of, of, of leftover change and money. We would just kind of throw it in there. And it just, it just kind of worked until one day it, it didn't. My sister, her, she had a car that was, it was not new, but it was, it was new to her and it was thus precious to her. Um, it was kind of a clown car. It was a 1980 Ford Fiesta. I don't know if anybody knows this. It was a, it was a lovely beige hatchback, two-door model. And, it, and when I say it was a clown car, it really was because it, it uncomfortably would seat four, and there were five of us, uh, at least at a time, kids that would get into it for the ride to school. And one morning we woke up to go to school and walked outside, and my sister's car was not there. And... and you know, we kind of look around and like, 
okay, we're looking at each other, did somebody borrow it? And we were, the hoodlums that we were, we had to question each other to make sure that one of us didn't take it and crash it during the night. And, and everyone's innocence was maintained. And so eventually we figured out that, that, that someone had stolen the car. Our, the local Billy Joe and Bobby Sue um, uh, took the money and ran whatever was in the glove compartment. They were off and gone, and they, they were taking their love to Mexico. Uh, true story. And uh, on the way, that you might not know this, but a Ford Fiesta is not made for the Audubon. Um, it, it could not handle the speed at which they were driving, and somewhere along the way, the, the, the motor burned up. The car was left on the side of the road, and I think it was not worth restoring. We never saw that again. Uh, it was paid for by the father of, of uh, the, 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 um, Bobby Sue. Um, but there was still that reality that, that we were shocked that this had happened. And anyone could have told you that, that parking on a main road with the windows down, the keys in the car, with money and gas uh, in the tank is an invitation to, to, for someone to come and steal the car. And, and we knew that was a possibility, but we just didn't think that it would ever happen to us. And that's the way it is. People don't believe until it's too late. This is why Paul says it, and not only Paul, but Christ as well, says the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. It is a certain day, and it is certainly an unexpected day. And so, so it invites us to, to consider that what are the two responses that people have to the knowledge of this day, to the reality of this coming day? And so Paul points us in the direction of two different kinds of people. He talks about the careless, and he talks about the watchful. And the careless are those who are indifferent, who have the it's never going to happen to me attitude. And, and there are several elements that he'll point to in this that, 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 that show you how they think. The first off, we can find those in, in verse 3. It says, these are those who say, peace and safety. Paul says, sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. They, they, they have a sort of studied indifference to the day. They, 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 they say, I've heard this. I've heard you preaching, Paul, but I just, look, I mean, I, I've been here for the past 40 years, and, and, and I've seen all that life has, and yeah, there's some days that are not as good as others, but, but really, I mean, do you, are you telling me this is going to happen tomorrow? People don't, don't accept that. They don't want to accept that, and it's not, it's not part of something that they easily accept because it's so natural to continue on as, you, as the previous day to think that, that tomorrow is going to be just the same. But the prophets warned us against this, Isaiah especially. When, when he says it, he says it to Babylon. He says it to, to an unbelieving nation. If you turn your Bibles back to Isaiah 47, you'll find he's got a very similar message that, that, that compares to Paul's. Isaiah 47 Verse 8, we read, Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in, its, in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you, and you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. It is the habit of a, of a sinful fallen heart, of a sinful fallen nation, and of sinful fallen individuals that populate that nation. This is the case here where you live. 
As we assume that day is not going to come, things will go on as they always have. And you would think that, that we could look back on the history of stock market crashes in this country and, and not realize that, 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 and know that there's going to be these, these days of sudden judgment. There are things that cannot be sustained in certain ways. Such is true for humanity in the way that it's going in rebellion against God. Verses 6 and 7, Paul points to, to two more facets or responses of their, their, their carelessness. Is, he identifies sleep, sleeping and drinking. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, and let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Sleeping is a different word that we read back in, in chapter 4 where it talks about resting. This is, is talking instead about what we think of when we lay down to sleep, when we lose consciousness, when we give up on the day, and it's over. And, 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 and Paul, when he, he uses this word, he, he will frequently use it in a way to tell you it's, it's a negative. Ephesians 5, he speaks of those who are once in darkness, a similar passage, he says, But now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the, fruitful, the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed, are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Romans 13, 11, similarly he says, and do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. In both cases, it's clear that the, the sleep is not merely an, an unconsciousness, but is a, it's, it's a a separation from the proper moral feeling. It's not being concerned about what believers ought to be concerned about. To know that there is a righteous God in heaven who has a righteous standard and that righteous standard is going to be applied to you. When Paul speaks of drunkenness, it's very much the same. Speaks of being in a state of mind that is unaware, that is, that is inebriated, it's intoxicated. It is, it is hindered from thinking properly. Of course, this would follow what Christ teaches. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, we hear Christ saying this in verse 34, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that the day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on those who dwell in the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Lack of sobriety is their curse. That they, they are in this state. They've gotten themselves into this state of not being able to think properly. And they will remain in that state because they can't think properly about it. It's the curse of the darkness. The curse of not being able to see. The, the curse of not being able to comprehend. And it's a, it's a curse that people invite upon themselves. And so they live there and they can't escape it. Note how Paul says this several, several ways back in our passage, verse 3. They say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. They shall not escape. Verse 4, they are in darkness, so that the day should overtake. He says, you are sons of light and sons of the day, not of the night and of darkness. Verses 6 and 7, let us not sleep 
as others do. Let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are drunk are drunk at night. With the result of all these, we read in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Implied is that they who are in darkness, they who are not sober, that they are under God's wrath. They have a common destiny. They have chosen a way which to go, and it is going to be a confirmed destiny that they will remain unthinking. They will be as beasts in, their, in, their, in the pain and anguish that they live in for all eternity. They will stay in darkness, separated from the light that God offers. This is what Christ preached. Turn your Bibles back to John chapter 3. Christ speaking to, to Nicodemus. He says to him in verse 18, he says, He who believes in him, the only begotten Son of God, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. It's a horrible place to be with those who are in darkness, those who are not sober, those who, who won't come to the light. Paul agrees with the Lord and he would point his he would point the children of God to go in a different direction. Look back at verse 5. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, he says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. It's a specific way of saying things. The Old Testament sort of used this. It's not a title that's used in the Old Testament, sons of light or sons of day, but it's a way of, of speaking kind of a Hebrew sort of form. And, it, and it, it speaks to your identity, to the group to which you belong. Not, not that this is a family connection, but, 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 it, but it's a group of those who identify in this way. The sons of the, uh, of the prophets are, are prophets. They are those who have given themselves to preaching. In this case, sons of light are those who believe in the light, those who hope in the light. John 12, 36, Christ says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed, and it was hidden from them. Of course, Paul picks up on this language. He does it here in our passage. He does it elsewhere in Ephesians 5. He says, For you once were darkness, but now you are Light in the Lord, walk as children of the light. It is the way because it's who you are, it's your identity, it's what you've done when you've embraced Christ who is the light. You become like him and so you want to walk with him where he is in the light. Isaiah 60 verse 3, it says, The Gentiles shall come to your light. It was foretelling that, that what happens when Christ is proclaimed, not only for Jews but also for Gentiles, that all can escape the darkness in which they walk and come to him if they believe. And if they believe, it results in a changed life. Being a son of the light means living in such a way that it's known that you belong to the light. Paul points out it's a life of goodness and of righteousness, of, of truth. It's a life being indwelt by the Spirit of God. As Pastor, Pastor, uh, the Spirit of God, as, as Pastor Dodds was explaining this morning, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit is within us, these things come out of us that cause us to look like our Savior. It means constantly discovering what the will of God is, how we should speak, who we should follow, where we should go, what we won't do, and what we will do. 
And it means siding with the Lord's people, hating sin, departing from it, not wanting to be near it so that you can be near those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. It means living with Christ and agreeing with Christ and denying the flesh and the world and the devil in whatever ways they want to attack us. Again, Paul reminds us what this means. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Those who are watchful are like Christ and they are also not overtaken. Verse 4, he says, You, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. Verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. They are watchful, they are ready, they are awake to the coming of the Lord. They not only expect it, but they long for it. It's a day they want to come. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his introduction to the church in Corinth, his letter to them to say, this is who you are. You're those who are expecting, this is what you're doing. And he closes the letter saying this, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Maranatha. Revelation twenty-two twenty. he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. And John responds, Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We want him to arrive. We know he fixes everything when he gets here, and we want that. We don't love this world so much that we want it to go on forever. We're expecting something so much better, so much beyond this, something that's going to make all of those those dreary, evil things go away and be replaced with light and glory. We want Christ. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together where? With him. We want to be where he is. So how do we respond to this? What what does this mean for believers? Well, we can say again, I think Pastor Robbins covered, covered this recently. But... The first thing that we do as watchers, as those who want to live in the light, is we, we predict this day accurately. And there's one accurate way to predict the coming day of the Lord, and that is not by looking at a calendar. It's not by doing some kind of complex numerology. It's not by watching out for the, the sign of the red heifer or the moon cycle or something, uh, some other kind of weird thing that people come up with and taking scriptures in, in improper ways and, and say, I can point to a certain day. The one thing that we can do that's accurate about this day is to say it's a day that's going to come suddenly as a thief in the night. Again, this is what our Lord Jesus taught us. Mark 13. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man who goes to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each one and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Our, our posture is that this day is coming. We're excited for this day to come, and we know it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come quickly. It's, it's a day that's going to arise, and no one is, is going to be ready for it, except that we're going to be ready. 
because we're expecting it, because we're wanting it, we're anticipating it, and it can't get here soon enough. What does Paul mean when he says to, to watch and to be sober? Well, it doesn't mean posting a lookout. It doesn't mean that, that someone needs to, to literally stand watch, staring into the east, waiting, ready to sound the call just in case Jesus shows up above the horizon, floating through the air. That day will come. And it's certain it's going to happen, and we do look forward to that. But, but we're not appointed to watch for it in that way. Instead, we're appointed to watch for it by living the right way. We're called to be vigilant and to, to endure suffering is very much a mark of those who are watching. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We have to be vigilant. We have to watch. We have to know, even in the midst of our suffering, we have to be waiting, saying, this is temporary. It doesn't last forever. We also have to be those who are working. That's what it means to watch. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convict, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He says, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And that's true not only for those who preach the gospel, that's true for every believer. Keep doing your work to which you've been called. Working, being vigilant in it, enduring as you do it, glorifying the Lord in how you do it, and expecting a reward for doing it for his glory. The third thing is that you would be sober and self-controlled. Peter calls us to gird up the loins of our minds, to be sober and to rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a posture we get ourselves into, that we get our mind thinking right about this world. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, those who walk in darkness, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter will go on in his second letter. He will say, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You see the, the repetition, the theme between the Lord and his apostles. That day will come in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? We're sober, we're self-controlled, we're directing our lives in the way in which they ought to go. And Paul would point you in an old way when he says to put on armor. We read about it first in Isaiah 59. He says, Verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation as his head and put on the garments of vengeance for his clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, the Lord says, accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands will fully repay. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. 
It's right and it's appropriate that those who follow him would take up their armor as well. The breastplate of faith and love, as Paul says, a helmet of hope for salvation. This is the call to stand with Christ on the day of judgment. To be a part of his army that are facing those who are opposed to him as he fights against them. Romans 13, 12, Paul writes, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Again, to be identified with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then then finally, how do we comfort one another with these words? Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And I would say that points to two simple things for us tonight. One is that we have to remind each other that there is a guaranteed retribution. As we talked before about what the day of judgment means. That there's a day in which wrongs are going to be righted. And some of you children know this. You know that person that did that evil thing to you that, that hurt you deeply. And you couldn't do a thing about it to get them back. I remember a guy, I won't say his name, but when I was about five years old, I think I was in kindergarten. He was a, he was a big burly second grader. I think he was probably about 220 pounds at that point. And he threw me to the ground and one of my friends and he kicked us several times and it was kind of the old days and you could kind of get away with that sort of a thing. And I just remember just being helpless because I was just little. And unfortunately, my older brother was little too. He couldn't do much about it either. And you just had to live with it. And I think he turned out okay, that guy. I think he's a better man now. Moved on since second grade. But you know what that feels like when you've had those people do that to you. And there's something that that is meant to comfort us when we know that a day is coming, a sudden day, in which those who walk in darkness, those who sleep, those who are not sober, are going to face what's coming to them. And they're going to be facing what's coming to them by a perfect judge who misses no details and who loves his children. And it's a horrible thing. And so we pray that the Lord would either make them our brother, but we also pray for that vindication of his righteousness that he is going to make that right. And vengeance will be visited upon all those who hate the Lord. We believe in that coming retribution. And we also, as Paul would direct us, we have a posture of hope. And again, this is something that you, you see throughout this. Paul is not dreading this day. He is putting it before God's people as a glory and a joy, something that, that is going to honor and vindicate him, something that's going to reward us, something that, that we can celebrate Together, there is a second coming, and the first coming was wonderful because the Lord came and he saved. And the second coming is still more wonderful because he comes not in humility but in glory. And what he began, he will complete at that day. It will all be made right. That hope, that encouragement instructs our hearts. It tells us there's a way in which we could go. It it, it tells us there's a reward for doing this right. One commentator on this passage, he, he, he he pointed us in that direction of the, the hope that's there. And he says, Paul envisions the use of these great truths about the second coming of the day, that they point to the character of Christians as sons of the day and sons of light. They point to the necessity of watching, for understanding that God has called us unto, not to wrath, but to salvation. And this at the cost of the death of his own son. He says all of these things are useful to build us up. It does edify us. To know that this is not what we see now is not all there's going to, there, there will be. But a final and a perfect day is coming. Our book of church order tells us godliness is founded on truth. 
A test of truth is its power to promote holiness according to our Savior's rule. By their fruits you shall know them. No opinion can be more pernicious or absurd than that which brings truth and falsehood upon the same level. On the contrary, there is an inseparable connection between faith and practice, truth and duty. Otherwise, it would be of no consequence either to discover truth or embrace it. You will never be made more holy or more useful by believing lies or by not knowing the truth. Paul knows that. Paul communicates truth to you. He convinces you that this day is coming and he tells you to be ready for it, to long for it, to anticipate it, to say this is what it means to be a son of the light. Again, as he says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you for the comfort of this passage. That in your loving us, that you would tell us the future. That we have been prophetically warned and we've been prophetically encouraged. That you've made both threat and promise. Oh Lord, that we would this night be those who are sons of the light and sons of the day. Who would walk in the presence of Christ, the Lord and giver of light. That we would live for him and that we would die for him. And we pray.